Our reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32, through to chapter 5, verses 11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. Good morning, church gathered, and good morning, church dispersed. It's good to continue the journey through the book of Acts. Last Sunday, for those of you who tuned in or were here, I made the comment that the war is real. That just as surely as the Ukraine are battling for their survival in a physical war at the moment on the other side of the, of the world, uh, the church from the beginning and today is involved in a war. Last week we heard about the attack on the apostles, on the early church, and it was coming, attack that was coming from the power brokers of Jerusalem at the time. It was in particular the Sadducees and the chief priests, and they were trying to silence the apostles from proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is alive. It was an external attack. In this morning's reading that Aaron has just brought to us, we see that the attack doesn't just remain external, but it becomes internal. 
And in this morning's reading that we've just heard, we realize that that attack actually can come in the very heart of believers, as we see in this tragic story that we've just heard read. So let's pause for prayer and ask for the Lord's enabling. Heavenly Father, as we gather in your name, we thank you that as we sit under your word, you will speak to us through this word. We pray that you would humble our proud hearts, that you would strengthen our timid hearts, that you would heal our broken hearts, that we might know Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. If you've got a Bible and you haven't opened it already, please turn with me to the book of Acts. I'm reading from chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were in one, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. You know, in 23 years of public ministry, I've never actually had the experience of somebody coming along and saying, Stu, I've, I've just sold my house, I've just sold my business, I've just sold my farm, and here we are, here's three quarters of a million dollars. You do with it as you please. I've never had that experience yet, but I'm ever hopeful, ever hopeful. But if you do get prompted to do such an act, then just be warned, you better be accurate with the accounting, as we're going to see in a moment. At the end of Acts in chapter 4, it's very, very similar to the end of chapter 2. And we see this grace-filled, spirit-filled church, the early church, in all its beauty, in all its unity, and in all its generosity. In chapter 2, Luke describes the marks of the spirit-filled church. Here in chapter 4, at the end, he describes how the grace of God was so powerfully at work on all of the believers. Both passages speak of the believers selling their property and bringing the proceeds to the apostles so that money could be distributed to anyone who had need. In chapter 4, three distinctives of the church are described. Firstly, they are united in heart and mind. Secondly, the apostles' preaching goes forth in power. And thirdly, God's grace is powerfully evident over all of the church. You know, there's nothing like opposition and a defined enemy for uniting a people. Consider the Ukrainian people right now. I wonder if they've ever been more united in their defense of their country. They know who their common enemy is. And although they're dispersed, they are united. Uh, so too the early church. They were united in heart and mind, Luke says. And I have no doubt that some of that unity comes from the opposition that they have been experienced, the external opposition from the Sadducees and the power brokers of Jerusalem. The opposition, no doubt, brought the church together, but clearly an outpouring of the Spirit of God is also uniting these people here. The preaching of Peter and John and all of the apostles Luke makes reference to 
was marked by a spirit-anointed power. And they were specifically proclaiming the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that he has overcome death. And the third distinctive of the early church of these people comes from the mark of God's grace being powerfully evident on all of them. And Luke records one of those marks as being this radical generosity, selling their homes, selling their properties, bringing the proceeds of the money to the apostles to care for the needy and the poor. One notable example is listed by Luke. Joseph the Levite from Cyprus, and they nickname him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And of course, Barnabas is going to feature prominently as the book of Acts unfolds. He becomes one of Paul's key missionary helpers. And so the Christian community here at the beginning, uh, at the end of Luke 4, is generosity and united in heart and mind. It is a Christian community in all harmony and light until it's not, until it's not. I wonder if you've ever experienced Christian community in all that unity and harmony, and then the second day you find reality kicks in. I was a part of a Christian community in, in West Auckland for three years, the Bible College of New Zealand, and, and there was an incredible sense of unity and harmony, and everybody loved what the Lord was doing, and then something happened. Sin crept into the community, and that unity and harmony was dispersed. We shouldn't be surprised. The Spirit-filled early church, for all its generous unity, shows that human sin doesn't automatically, instantaneously fall away. And so Luke records this second example of a couple being moved to sell their property and they bring the proceeds to the apostles, but here their motives are very, very mixed. And so turn with me to chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, Peter makes it very clear in verse 4 that the property of the believers was their property to hold and do with what they chose to do. He also makes it clear in verse 4 that after they had sold the property, the proceeds was entirely at their discretion. How they would give the money was at their discretion. Peter makes that quite clear. The asset belonged to the couple before they sold their lands, and how much money they gave was at their discretion. But the trouble here is they lied about its value. They conspired as a couple to give a false figure to the apostles, and they brought the rest to Peter. Look at verse 3 and following. Then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God's. In this verse, Luke 
pulls back the curtain of the cosmic struggle that is going on for the early church. In these verses, we reveal that the battlefield is the human heart, and in particular, it's Ananias's heart here. His greed, his pride, his deception is an entry point for Satan to enter into, and the wages of his sin is literally death in this account. Ananias falls dead at Peter's feet at the word of his judgment. He falls to his death. And the young men come in and they carry him off and he is buried outside. And a great fear, understandably, grips the community of believers. Now, interestingly, at the beginning of Israel's journey into the promised land, a very, very similar story takes place. And it's recorded in Joshua chapter 6 and chapter 7. The Israelites have just crossed over the promised land. They've gone through the rivers of Jordan. They've crossed over into the promised land that God would give them this land. Their first uh, assault is on the city of Jericho. And that city, although it is so well fortressed, that city falls because God is with them. And there is great celebrating. And so they continue on. And the next city that they take is, to sit, is the city of Ai. It's a smaller city. They take just 3,000 men with them because they know this will be an easy victory. They head up there and it all goes horribly wrong. The small little city defends itself and Israel is soundly defeated. They turn tail and at least 28 people are killed. And Joshua can't understand what's going on here. Joshua struggles and so he falls in prayer before the Lord. But in chapter 7 of Joshua, we, we get a glimpse of what was going on. Chapter 7, verse 1, we read, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, and the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, significantly, took some of them, that is the devoted things, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Joshua falls at his feet before God. He doesn't know what's taken place. He's prostrate for a whole day before the Lord. And then the Lord says the following to him in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And they have put them in their own possessions. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. That's the sober warning that God gives to Israel as they're beginning out on their journey into the promised lands. Achan had stolen gold. He had stolen silver. He had stolen a, a beautiful robe from Babylonia and he'd put it in his own tent and he'd lied about it. So this violation has taken place of God's commands. One of the Israelites has taken these devoted things for his own gratification and enjoyments. Because of the solitary act of unfaithfulness, the Bible records how the Lord's anger burned against Israel and they were defeated in their second battle. God's favor was withdrawn and they were defeated in the battle. The lesson is clear from Joshua 7. Unfaithfulness 
will render you vulnerable to the defeat at the hands of the enemy. It is true then as it is true now. Joshua's instructions are explicit to expose the guilty party and so one by one the clans come up before Joshua and they explain their guilt or their innocence. It comes to the family of Achan and he confesses his sin. He said, yes, I've got this gold, I've got this silver, I've got this robe and the judgment of God falls on their family. They are stoned by the Israelites, they are burned, and they are buried in the valley of Achor, which means trouble. Back to the book of Acts, where a similar purging of sin takes place. Ananias has been killed at a word of judgment from Peter. He falls to his feet and he's dead and he is buried. And three hours later, his wife shows up, Sapphira. She turns up seemingly unaware of what has taken place to her husband and Peter asks a question about the price of the property that they sold and she also lies to Peter and Peter asks how can you do this and so in chapter 5 verse 9 we read this Peter said to her how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Twice in these 11 verses, Luke records how fear falls on the people of God and we can understand it in verse 5 great fear gripped all who heard about Ananias's death in verse 11 the fear is wider let me read it again to you great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events looks pretty clear that the word of judgment spoken by Peter was God's judgment on their sin what made you think of doing such a thing you have not lied just to human beings, but to God's. And for them to die as a result of this judgment understandably causes great fear in the early church. A question that emerges from this event is how seriously do we consider sin? How seriously do we consider sin? There are at least three sins on display in this tragic event of Ananias and Sapphira. There is deception, there is greed, and there is the telling of lies. And it would appear from Peter's account that these sins opened the door of Ananias' heart for Satan to enter into his heart. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is disturbing at many levels. But it's also vital, I believe, for the church today to listen and hear again, for us not to be naive. The enemy of your soul is real, and he needs to be considered but not feared. Three things I want you to take away this morning from these passages. Firstly, guard your heart. Secondly, know your enemy. And thirdly, fear God and not Satan. Firstly, guard your heart. Guard your heart. You know, over the last few years, a number of high-profile ministers of the gospel have fallen and I'm thinking in particular of Bill Hybels and Ravi Zacharias. In recent days, the senior leader of Hillsong, 
Brian Houston has to resign from his post because something has gone wrong in his ministry. The lessons from these men's fall from grace is this. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. You know, there's a wonderful chapter in Proverbs 4 that speaks about wisdom. It speaks about righteousness. It speaks about finding the wisdom of God's. And then it goes on to say this. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. You know, the enemy of your soul knows the truth of that second part of that verse. And he'll seek to destroy you if you give him an entry point. Your heart is the center of your being. It is the central processing unit, if you will, to use a modern metaphor. It's the seat of your thinking, the seat of your emotions, your decision-making, your moral choices, your energy. Significantly, it is the moral choices that we make that open ourselves up or close ourselves off from the enemy's invasion. For Ananias and Sapphira, they broke God's command to tell no lies They tried to deceive Peter and they paid the price with their lives. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it, the word of God says. Secondly, know your enemy. Know who your enemy is. Satan is seeking to destroy the church. He has been doing it from the beginning. He is still doing it. In Acts chapter 4, we read of the sweet, spirit-filled fellowship that is the early church, united and generous. And then the enemy finds an entry point in, and that unity and that generosity is disturbed. My encouragement to you today is to know your enemy. Don't fear him because his defeat is certain. But know that God has allowed the prince of this world to control those who are governed and not governed by or submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dylan put it this way, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Who do you choose this day to serve? Who do you choose this day to serve? And let me be quite clear. As someone who sat on the fence for 28 long years, indecision, on this issue is a vote for the prince of this world, Satan, and he will seek to destroy you. Who do you serve this day? Shane has a great phrase for young men to watch out for the temptations that come in three areas, in girls and gold and glory. Three common temptations, not just for young men, but for all people. Sexual infidelity, Lust of greed and for money and the pride of life to make a name for yourself. These are all entry points as we so tragically see for the enemy to come into our lives. Know your enemy, church. Be wise, be aware, and put on the armor of God. As Paul says so eloquently in Ephesians, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, 
so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Church, I want to encourage you today to know your enemy. And thirdly and finally, my final encouragement from this text is to fear God and not Satan. God is holy. God is majestic. God is powerful in all his glory and he cannot tolerate sin in his holy presence. When he was establishing his people of Israel in the promised land and sin crept in through the family of Achan, he purged his people with fire. When the apostles are just beginning to establish the early church and sin crept in through the family of Ananias and Sapphira, he purged his community with their very lives. God has the power to judge us. In the fullness of time, we will stand before him and have to give an account before him for our lives. And none of us can stand. None of us can stand in our own righteousness. But thanks be to God, he has made a way for us to stand, not condemned, and in victory. God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God has made a way for us to know the victory of Christ. Are you walking in that victory today? Fear God and not Satan. You'll be well aware of the, the proverb in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But this fear of the Lord is much richer, it is much deeper than just knowledge and wisdom. Listen to how, how David puts it in Psalm 34. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Church, this is a, a sobering passage that we need to wrestle with and take seriously. Let me encourage you today to guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart to know your enemy and to fear your God and to live for his glory alone. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we gather as your church, we acknowledge that we do so. Acknowledge that it is by your grace that we are here. And we acknowledge this morning from this word that we are in a battle. And the battle is real. But I thank you and praise you that at the cross of Calvary, you have won the victory over the enemy of our souls, over your enemy. And I pray for each and every one of us that you would help us to walk by faith in the light of that victory. Lord, help us to guard our hearts. Help us to be wise and not to be naive. Lord, we acknowledge that you are a holy God, but in your holy perfection, you love us and you will not let us go. And so I pray that by your grace, that same grace, that same favor that was on the early church, you would protect us, 
Protect us from the subtleties of Satan. May your blood be over each and every household that is represented here and that is tuning in. May your protecting grace be over each and every one of us. And we pray, Lord, as you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.